Hey everybody, and welcome to another History of Westeros uh, podcast, a podcast dedicated to A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R. R. Martin, as well as the television show Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm only just one of your hosts, I'm Steve, very Italian here in Los Angeles. And of course, I'm going to introduce this one, Aziz, my other co-host out there in Atlanta. How you doing, Aziz? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks. Um, with me uh, to my left is Ashea. Uh, most of you have heard her name before. Uh, this is her first appearance on the podcast, and we're very happy to have her. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So, yeah, we're out here in Atlanta, and, and there's Jake and Hakat passing by in the back. The kitty master of the photobomb. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the history of Old Town and the Citadel, which of course will include House Hightower because they are the sort of uh, the lords of Old Town, the lord of the port, as it, as it were. And of course, we'll be talking about the Maesters a bit because they are the you know at the Citadel. And this episode will be spoiler free. Uh, it's been a while since we've done a spoiler-free episode. We kind of got caught up with some plots and and fun stuff like that. But it's time to circle back and and do one for the uh, the folks who haven't progressed all the way through the books. Uh, we're going to also have a companion episode to this one next week, which will be spoilery. So we'll have plots of the Maesters and plots of the Citadel and and High Towers and all that stuff. But for now, we'll stick with the non-spoilery stuff. Excellent, awesome, yeah, it sounds great. So, yeah, we're, like you said, we're going to be talking about Old Town and the Citadel, and uh, we got to this subject based on a poll that was posted to our Facebook page. Yeah, we did. We had a poll posted on our Facebook page. We're going to continue doing that from time to time. We'll post up a list of topics that we are interested in, and then you guys out there can vote and tell us which of those ones we've suggested is the one you most want to hear. We had Aegon's Conquest up there, and we had... Flora and fauna, the creatures and interesting plants and, and other uh, unusual features of A Song of Ice and Fire. And then the third topic was wild peoples, which was, you know, like the Dothraki and the wildlings and things like that. So those are, those are topics we'll cover eventually, but the viewers uh, and listeners decided that this one was the one that they wanted to hear next. So here we are. Yep, here we are. So uh, let's go ahead and get that started then. Yeah. Yeah. So Old Town is the oldest city in Westeros. It was built by the first men in the Dawn Age. Uh, it lost that title relatively recently, relatively to how old it is, but it lost it to King's Landing. Um, Steve is going to tell us a little bit about the geography of Old Town. Well, as you can see here, I don't know how well you can see it on the map, but uh, there's a little location of it there. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, it is located in the far southwestern portion of Westeros. It's right at the mouth of the Honeywine River, which empties out into the Whispering Sound and on into the Sunset Sea. This makes it a really key location for commerce because it has, you know, as sea travel bearing into it, and it also connects to a very a major road that cuts through the south, known as the Rose Road, and that one stretches all the way from Old Town. And it goes to Highgarden, then through Bitterbridge to King's Landing. So, yeah, it's a great port city for commerce. Yeah. I would think it's also kind of strategic, having have some strategic advantages, too, because you control the, if you control the Rosewood, you would actually control Old Town. And outside, oh, one thing also to mention, outside the actual Whispering Sound is where they have, uh, is where the Arbor is. And the Arbor, you've heard mentioned many times in the books and in the show, that's where they make all those fabulous wines they drink. I imagine that a lot of those wines are shipped to Old Town and then dispersed throughout, well, the world, really, not just Westeros, 
mm-hmm. uh, because we're, we're the arbor. We don't. We haven't. It's not a su- the subject of today's podcast, of course. But it being so close by and it being such an important center of production, it, it has to be. It, it bears mention. I suppose that's a a large part of how Old Town developed to be such a large port in the beginning is because of the arbor itself uh, and perhaps some other features nearby. Uh, I also wanted to mention that it's important to note, as Ashea pointed out, that King's Landing surpassed Old Town very recently. The Old Town is thousands of years old, and King's Landing only surpassed it within the last 200 or so. It was built 300 years prior to the beginning of the books, and at some point it surpassed Old Town in size. We don't really know, I don't suppose. Even the characters would know the answer to that question. But uh, it's important to know because it's, it's a fairly recent change. And that, that tends to speak to how important Old Town is because it's been big and powerful for so long. Another feature, a geographical feature that bears mention is the fact that Dorne has very few places, very few safe anchorages, really. So there's very few places you can park a ship. If you're, if you're sailing along the southern coast of Westeros, there's a long stretch where there's really nothing. You, you have to go all the way around, all the way to the reach to get to Old Town to find anything. So that's another feature I imagine makes Old Town so important is the fact that there's nowhere to land before that for the most part. Now, there are a few places to go, but they're, you know, Dorne is mostly desert. So as far as southern Westeros goes, Old Town is not only important for its location, but because, it's frankly, there's not a whole lot else down there. So... Distribution center for all the wines. Yeah, I think that's actually that's almost certainly how it got started. I mean, wine in our own world has been a product, a trade product for as long as human civilization has existed. I, I imagine it's similar in Martin world here. So you got to figure that yeah, the, the the arbor is hugely important to Old Town being what it is today. Now we have an interesting quote from the memories of Davos Seaworth. He he goes through kind of in his mind what a lot of the ports are like, because as a smuggler, he had gone in and out of a lot of these ports. He considers Old Town to be like a perfumed dowager, which is, obviously, that's a compliment of a nicely smelling port. And the ports aren't exactly known for, in general, for smelling pleasant. So the fact that it smells good to him, is that's a good sign. And he compares that to King's Landing, which he says smells like an unwashed whore. So, <laughs> you know, that kind of gives you an idea. Old Town is very nice. It's got cobblestones. Uh, even the smallest alley is, is paved, whereas King's Landing is dirt roads and mud. All this crap. So uh, it's, a, it's a much nicer place. Let's put it that way. Um, it's also got stone, man- uh, stone mansions. Uh, a lot of stone buildings in general. It's, it's very, like I said, very well, well made, very well crafted. And part of that is how old it is. Uh, King's Landing, once again, being new, that's a big reason why so many of the hovels are, well, they're hovels. They're not homes. They're not houses. They're not mansions. They haven't been built. That's the, that's the nature of stone buildings is they stay there a long time. Until someone puts a lot of effort into destroying them or taking them apart, they're going to last. So these buildings that have been created in Old Town, and we're going to go through a few of them specifically here and there as we go through this episode, you'll see that a lot of them have been there a long time, thousands of years. So I think that maybe if, if you were to fast forward a thousand years in the future, assuming King's Landing is still there, no reason to assume it wouldn't be, it's, it's, far, it's, it's so important, I think you would see that it would start to improve as well. You'd see a lot of the crappy buildings replaced by nice stone buildings, some of the, you know, you'd see more wooden structures as well, things like that, more roads, more paving, things like that. 
So let's see. Um, and then the last last little bit here, as far as just some of the internal workings of Old Town, some of the basic high-level view, we had the City Watch. Just like there's the gold cloaks in King's Landing, they don't really have a title that I'm aware of, no nickname that I'm aware of in Old Town. There's no, uh, they don't, maybe there's maybe some cloak color they have, and they get called the Yellow Cloaks or something like that. But we haven't been given any, given any nickname like that. So... But interestingly enough, they are commanded by Sir Morin Tyrell. And you'll see, without getting too much into, obviously we're not going to talk about spoilers, but you'll see that the Tyrells have a few people placed in important positions here uh, in, in Old Town. Which makes sense. They are the lords of the Reach, and Old Town is a, a, a subject to them. So it does make sense. But of course, you've got to keep an eye on your own power base. And the Tyrells are smart. They realize that... The center of power is where you got to make sure you keep your good people. So they got to make sure they hang on to things. Would they be Lord Tyrell, in charge of the uh, city watch? He is the uncle of Mace Tyrell. And now we are going to move on to the high tower itself. Shay is going to tell us about that. Yeah, the high tower is the largest structure in Old Town, and it's the tallest in Westeros. It is a massive lighthouse. It extends 800 feet up. It has a light atop it, obviously, as it's a lighthouse. Uh, it's the seat of House Hightower, hence the name. And it's also a castle. It's located in the port of Old Town, atop Battle Island, which is an interesting name, to say the least. Uh, Old Town grew around House Hightower. The lighthouse is constantly burning. And a fun fact is that a long-term resident of Old Town can tell time by its shadow. Now, there are some other interesting buildings, like what, Steve? Well, there's the Thieves' Market, which reminds me of old, uh, old. I don't know if you guys watched it, uh, uh, Babylon 5, they had their own Thieves' Guild that took over a whole section of the station. Well, this is kind of similar, a similar situation where they had their own market. I'm not sure how much involvement the City Watch actually gets involved with the Thieves' Market, but I'm, I'm assuming it's probably not the best place to go walking around at night. <laughs> there may be some bribery back and forth there. Uh, hey, I'll yeah. The other way, you know. <laughs> There's also a number of foreign temples down by the wards, and this is most likely for the people of different religions, because this is the Faith of the Seven uh, center uh, because of the Citadel. And uh, there's some foreign temples down there that necess don't necessarily actually follow the Faith of the Seven. Um, they may follow Relor or somebody else and whatnot. And that's kind of interesting that they would have that in the, in the actual hub of where the Faith of the Seven actually resides. So, yeah, so we're going to go back to, uh, speaking of religion, we're going to go back to Mr. Aziz, and he's going to talk about some of the more popular sects within the area. Just to comment on what you said as well, Steve, the, if, if anyone who's ever been to an airport or perhaps a port city in modern times has probably seen one of those interfaith chapels or, you know, one of those, like, kind of generic houses of worship. This is sort of along those lines. You see these, you see, any, t any place where is a melting pot where you have lots of foreigners and of course a port is, is uh, an obvious place that's going to be like that and it's so there's like generally going to be a lot of different temples and, and religions and, and these things represented because there's going to be a demand for it there's going to be people coming in from a lot of different places around the world and they're going to want to be able to worship their own gods so it's basically an issue of demand, supply and demand you know, there's a lot of people that want to do worship their, their gods that are from leagues and leagues away on another continent, and so these things are provided for them. And of course, once again, that speaks to the age of Old Town. Old Town is so old that it's had time for these temples to pop up over time and, and prosper and 
uh, maintained. So let's see here. Uh, a couple of examples. We have the Starry Sept, which is the seat of the Seven before the Great Sept of Baylor, which is now in King's Landing. That's an important uh, note. Uh, the fact that Old Town, not only was it the largest city for so long, but it was also the center of religion. Uh, not only because it had all these other small temples, but because the actual High Septon had his base there. Um, that was... That changed later. The High Septon moved his seat some point after Egon's conquest. Uh, we believe it was during the time of Jaehaerys, perhaps after the death of uh, the young dragon. It may have been... It was built by... Uh, the Great Sept was built by King Baylor the Blessed, the, you know, the, the highest Septon priest uh, king. And it's very likely that he had a lot to do with this, but the, the, Sept, the High Septon may have actually moved to seat before that. So we're, not, we're not actually clear on the specific dating of that event. Um, it's, known that, it's known for its black marble walls and arched windows. It's really, once again, a really nicely made building like a lot of Old Town is, uh, reflecting the wealth of the port and the fact that it's the central religion of Westeros. Any place you go that's the center religion, unless the religion is specifically trying to uh, eschew um, traffics of wealth, which is, you know, you see that from time to time, but it's pretty common for uh, the fanciest churches or the fanciest synagogues or mosques or whatever to, to be really nice looking. And it sounds like this is what this is. It's really well made. Really, uh, No expense was spared. They probably taxed the hell out of the people and <laughs> spent a lot of money on it. But it's been there a long time. There's also the Sailor Sept, which from its description you can imagine it's right there uh, by the water. Probably uh, the most convenient prayer location for sailors. I can imagine a bunch of drunken sailors or sailors that came off a really rough voyage, barely surviving with their lives, happy to be alive, and <laughs> their purses filled with coin from a successful voyage, maybe stumbling into this church, immediately giving thanks, and probably dropping a few coins here, you know, uh, as, as in prayer. Um, I imagine they get a lot of that. Um, also, there's the Lord Sept. Not really clear on what part of town that's in, but you can be pretty sure that it's in a nice part of town. Probably don't have a lot of riffraff there. You probably got a lot of really well dressed. Uh, you probably, probably it's probably noblemen only, um, and their families. Probably not a lot of uh, probably not a lot of lowborn people in there. They're probably not allowed. I mean, I guess it's, it tends to be how these things go. Probably not near the thieves market then. Probably not. Although the thieves market would uh, would be well placed if it were near that. That'd be a good target for them. Uh, and there's a place called the Seven Shrines. Uh, this is another thing that we've only got a vague description of, but I can imagine it seems a pretty safe guess that the seven shrines are, there's one, each one of these shrines is to one of the seven gods. I'm sure there's one shrine to the mother, one to the maiden, one to the crone, one to the stranger, and the rest. <laughs> uh, so I imagine that folks will pick the one that, you know, is most relevant to their, their station in life and, and uh, spend time with. Um, now, we will move on to uh, some of the really ancient history. We're going to talk about uh, the very far back, pre-Andal time. And Shay is going to do that. All right. So back in the Dawn Age, there was a petty kingdom period where all, throughout the whole land, there wasn't just seven kingdoms. There were hundreds of kingdoms. Every, every lord in their, in, their, in their city and in their castle is pretty much a king in their own right. 
And during this time, during the Dawn Age, House of Hightower ruled Old Town. They were kings of Old Town. Um, Steve is going to start us off with a little bit of basic fact about House Hightower. Yeah, High Hightower um, have been around for a very, very, very long time, uh, prior to the annual invasion, as you said. Um, so, yeah, they've been around since the dawn of days. Um, and they most likely got into power because of how rich they are. Um, at least as rich as uh, House Lannister. And they can actually field three times as many swords on the battlefield as other Tyrell bannermen. And they're considered to be very stalwart and loyal. And they have their own sigil, of course, which is basically a stone white watchtower with a little fire burning on top, you know, because, you know, the symbol is basically a lighthouse. And the words are, we light the way. Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so one thing that's really interesting about High South Tower, they have that reputation for being loyal and stalwart. We've heard that. But our own research doesn't really, uh, doesn't really jive with that. They, they seem to be the type that doesn't really want to get into conflict. They're not really one of those... Uh, Lord, uh, one of those lordly houses that enforces themselves through uh, violence. And certainly they have a powerful army of their own, but they're really, a tr they're really powerful because of their, their lordship of, of, of the city, this powerful port city. So in other words, they're really trade lords rather than you know, feudal lords in a sense. Uh, strictly speaking, they are feudal lords. They have vassals and all that, and they uh, are sworn to the rich. But they are fabulously wealthy. I mean, they're as rich as the Lannisters, and the Lannisters control the entire West. I mean, that's kind of absurd <laughs> to think about it. These guys aren't even in charge of their own kingdom, uh, their own uh, one of the seven kingdoms. So they have as much wealth as the as the High Tower or as the Lannisters. That's really kind of shocking when you think about it. Um, and I'm sorry, you might kind of wonder if some of the king's debt that we've been seeing throughout the books at this point is actually been loaned from, because we know a lot of it comes from the Lannisters. Yeah. Now, I wonder if the High Towers have been borrowed from as well. Yeah, that's a good question. I've, I would guess they have been. It, it might be unusual for the throne to borrow from the vassal of one of their vassals. That might be unusual. It might be strange for them to borrow. It would be strange for them, maybe potentially strange for that. I'm not really sure the, you know, the, whether that's kosher. But certainly it's a, it, it seems not unlikely. You kind of get the sense that House Hightower is actually more powerful than some of the other great houses. I, I imagine that they are at least as powerful as, as House Greyjoy in some ways. Certainly they don't have military might, but they do have uh, so much more wealth than House Greyjoy. And it would be interesting to see how that pairs up um, with, uh, you know, if we could see some sort of layout of their value. Now, at some point in, in ancient history, because remember, the Tyrells haven't been in charge that long. They were, the, the High Towers were defeated or they submitted to House Gardner. Now, remember House Gardner, if you remember from our Tyrell episodes, House Gardner were kings of the Reach for all the way up until Aegon conquered them. But interestingly enough, the How Towers were not present at the Field of Fire, which was the great showdown battle between Aegon and King Myrne and the other uh, assembled armies there. Uh, the Lannisters were there as well. So it's interesting that they did not support them there. Uh, so basically, you can kind of get the sense of the way they welcomed the Andals and the way that they submitted to Aegon 
And even during the War of Five Kings, they kind of played both sides a bit. So they never, they don't overcommit to one side. They, 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 they kind of stay in the middle. They're very neutral, and they've survived so long by not fighting battles they can't win. They, they join up with the winner. They, that could be on the winning side, and that has worked very well for them. That's why... And of course, who doesn't want the, a wealthy house like them on their side? When you know, rather than fighting, you definitely want that on your side rather than his opponent. So, well, that's very well. So now we're going to talk about uh, some of the stuff I started to touch on a little bit already, but more in more detail. Aegon's conquest. Uh, Steve, why don't you get us started? Okay. Well, as you just said, King Myrne did not join his liege, Lord Gardner, but uh, what he instead did, he opened his gates to Aegon. So this is the second time we've seen them do that. They did it with the Andals. And I heard he does it again to Aegon, and like you said, it seems that they pick their battles very carefully, and if they don't think they can win, they're going to automatically just say, you know what, hey, come on in, we want to join you, we're on your side. And of course, Aegon's like, he's not stupid, he's like, okay, come on in. And um, because this was such an old city and such a, you know, a very wealthy city, um, Aegon was actually crowned at the Starry Set, which is, of course, again, like we said before, the seat of the faith of the Seven, until the construction of uh, Baylor and King's Landing. So for the longest time, Old Town was the richest for a very long time, and until very recently, which you know, after Aegon's conquest, is when King's Landing gradually passed it in size, thus making Old Town the second largest. And of course, prior to Aegon's conquest, it was the largest city, and, uh, and it also contained the Citadel, which we're going to go into very quickly. That's where all the maesters get trained in their various disciplines. So we're going to go back to Mr. Aziz, and we're going to go on what happened after Aegon's conquest. Well, there's a few notes of interesting characters and people that popped up um, here and there uh, after Aegon's conquest. Basically, these are just tidbits, little, little, little factoids, little uh, pieces of information that will come up in the text perhaps later, or perhaps they already have. And basically, these are things that I want you all to maybe remember, because because these are, these are things that might be important plot points later. Maybe not, but I, I, this is part of our, part of what we try to do here at, with this podcast, is we try to connect the dots. We try to pick out things from the text that are going to matter, or that you may not have realized mattered. And that way, when you stumble across them in the text, you don't just miss that moment. It's like an opportunity for something fun that you may not have, may not, may have missed. You may have read right over it and not known. You just read something really cool that if you had connected the dots to something prior that you would have been like, oh, that's really neat. So that's, that's part of what we do here. Um, so a couple of these examples. There's a, there's a character named Wallace Flowers. Now, Wallace Flowers, of course, anyone uh, familiar with the bastard named Flowers knows that's a, a bastard from the Reach. Well, he was, an, he, was an, uh, he was the son of an archmaster and a high tower. Now, he was the maester to Rickard Stark, that is the father of Brandon and, and of course, Ned and Lyanna and Benjamin. So you have this maester who is a Hightower uh, by birth. Uh, also, of course, like I said, his, his father is from the Citadel. And something we're going to talk about in a future episode, a lot of the stuff that happens in Game of Thrones uh, that Ned goes through in his own memories refers to a lot of these marriage alliances that were happening at the time before the rebellion. It's easy to miss these marriages as unusual. Normally, marriages happen within their own kingdoms, but uh, there's there's some evidence, perhaps, that Wallace Flowers had something to do with 
Ricard's ambitions in the South, trying to marry off so many of his family outside of his own kingdom was unusual, and yet you saw a lot of other lords doing the same thing right prior to this rebellion. So basically what this builds up to is the potential that these lords were planning something before the actual rebellion. But that's an that's that's, an, that's a subject for another podcast. You know that I piqued your interest there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. but but more specifically to uh, events that have already happened, rather than stuff that might happen or might have happened. We talk about something else that comes from from Ned's chapters, which is his fever dreams and his memories of the Tower of Joy and of Liana and of that battle versus the Kingsguard. His seven versus their three. The three being Gerald Hightower. There you go. The White Bull, who was the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard before uh, Sir Barristan the Bold took that over. And with him was Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, the finest knight in the Seven Kingdoms by uh, many accounts, and Sir Oswell Went. Now these three were Rhaegar's best friends, and the interesting part here is that Rhaegar was nowhere to be seen for a long time. The war had already started, and Gerald Hightower was sent by the king to go find Rhaegar and bring him out and have him lead these armies. It was important for the crown prince to be seen and to be leading the troops. So Gerald Hightower finds him at the Tower of Joy, and then, but doesn't return with him. Rhaegar orders Gerald to stay there. Now, why does Rhaegar order, order Gerald, Sir Arthur, and Oswell Went, these three fine Kingsguard knights who are also some of his closest friends? Now, why does he have them guard Lyanna? Uh, and is Lyanna pregnant? Maybe. Anyway, that's also a subject for another podcast, but uh, we're really good at uh, giving you guys teasers in this particular episode, aren't we? So that's something to think about. That's a big one. So think about why Gerald Hightower would have been left there. Um, and, of course, he's killed, Gerald Hightower. Uh, we can't ask him. <laughs> he's killed, along with Sir Arthur Dane and Oswell Went by uh, Ned and his companions. Of course, only Ned and Howland Reed and perhaps some serving men or, or, or uh, this, this uh, nursemaid, Wyla, perhaps. Uh, very few others would have been there to witness what transpired afterwards. Uh, and, of course, Ned is now dead as well. So, really, um, we'd like to know what happened there. So let's, uh, but that's, uh, that's a, once again, that's another subject. So, but just a teaser there, folks, to see how all these things tie together. Yeah, I like to be, because there's so much seems to come back to that moment in time. Yeah. The Tower of Joy. The Tower and, of Joy. Uh, we're going we to have to do a full podcast on the Tower of Joy and all the, all the ramifications and all the possibilities. But, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> for now, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stick with the current subject at hand. So, Steve, um, Let's talk about some more facts and some more recent history um, since Aegon's Conquest. Okay, yeah, well, one point in the old, in the old town, somewhere around about 2040, or 240, I'm sorry, um, AL, which is after Aegon's Landing, this has been around the time that Mr. Pycelle was either born or he was a young child uh, in old town. This plague struck the city. Now, this is not to be confused with the spring sickness. This, is, this was known as the Gray Plague. Quentin Hightower actually closed down the city. He burned the ships, closed the gates, and slew anyone who tried to come or try to leave the city. Uh, this turned out to be a really big deal, and it made uh, Quentin Hightower very unpopular. In fact, the day after it was declared by the maesters that the plague had finally cleared, 
the the townspeople were so upset they actually dragged Quentin and his eldest son from their horses and slew and slew them. I believe it was by cutting their throats, uh, from what I understand. So this was a pretty big deal. So as soon as the disease had pretty much run out and nobody else is getting sick, no new diseases have been popping up, the very next day the townspeople rose up against Quentin and his eldest son. So this was a pretty big deal and it really put Hightower lower on the on the peg of popularity with the people. It's a real it's too it's rough too because you know in hindsight he did exactly what he had to do. He he made sure the plague didn't spread. He was he did the right thing. He 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 had to do it was a tough decision to be sure. It, it meant killing people, it meant perhaps killing people who weren't infected, slaying people, uh, but but in order to protect the realm I think he did the right thing, but no doubt that's going to make you unpopular, even doing the right thing. Yeah, and I, I and this and keep in mind this did take place after the spring sickness, and the spring sickness spread like crazy all over the place. So he did he did do what he had to do to keep his to keep the rest of the realm safe. He it, locked out his city and contained this this awful plague. Which that's a really good point, by the way. The the pointing out of the great spring sickness being so close by that, that had to be this. Our date on this is is an estimate because we're. We get this information from Maester Pycelle, and we don't exactly know how, you know, how, whether he was born in Old Town or whether he, we believe he's from the West, but he certainly was in the Old Town as a boy, so he's been there a long time. And the Great Spring Sickness was around 210-ish, so yeah, that's that's two really nasty plagues in a short period of time. Now we're we're not told that the Great Plague got out of Old Town, but it was it was localized there thanks to Quentin Hightower, but. For for people in Old Town, that had to be it had to bring back nightmares yeah. of the prior play. I'm sure the people that survived. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was barely a generation. Yeah. It was barely yeah. a generation separated between the two. So yeah, I mean, all these people had to remember what happened during the Great Spring Sickness. And yeah. while yeah, Old Town was affected yeah. quite heavily, the rest of the realm was spared as of Quentin's uh, actions. You can just imagine if one ship full of uh, plague victims gets gets out into the water. There, you know, it could end up spreading to all kinds of different ports, and, and you, know, you, could, you could have an epidemic all throughout the entire the entire continent. Well, uh, historically, so, just look at the Black Plague. I'm pretty sure the uh, the CDC would agree with uh, this this method, <laughs> given the means he had. Uh, you know, and yes. his lack of understanding of uh, biology. Um, a couple other interesting facts, uh, specific to High Tower. We've got. Allery Hightower is the wife of Mace Tyrell, so that's yet another connection between the, the most powerful house in the Reach and the second most powerful house in the Reach. Uh, so these two, of course, are very tied into each other. There's also a uh, there's also, by the way, a Tyrell uh, Maester, um, Maester Gorman. Baylor is the son. Uh, we have. Uh, Lord Hightower has a large family. <laughs> and he's like, I think it's ten children. Uh, the one we've actually probably heard the most about is one of the youngest, that's Liness. Uh, that's Sir Jorah's ex-wife, who is now the consort of uh, the Archon of Tyrosh, or I forget. Um, yeah, she's, uh, she's out of the picture, largely, as far as Westeros goes, although they're, you know, any kind of, she's, she's married to a... I mean, not technically married to, but the concubine of someone very, very powerful. So mm -hmm. she still has influence, but uh, I don't know that she's going to have a lot to do with Westeros anymore. Uh, but there are those who do. <laughs> For example, we have Baylor Hightower, also known as Baylor Bright Smile or Baylor Breakwind, depending on who you ask. 
He had the unfortunate, uh, he was unfortunate enough to break wind in front of uh, Ilya and uh, Oberyn the Red Viper, and uh, that's, uh, that ended Baylor's potential as a suitor for Elia Martell. <laughs> she was no longer able to take him seriously after that. Gunthor uh, Hightower is the next eldest son, and he is apparently tasked with uh, building the harbor defenses, while Baylor is uh, in charge of building ships. Now, we also have Garth, who is the nickname Greysteel, another son of, of, uh, of Lord Hightower. And he sounds like he's made himself a reputation as a warrior. We don't really know how he got that nickname, but uh, that's, it sounds like a, a positive nickname. And he is, he is off traveling to Lice, which, uh, which is where Lanessa is, apparently. Yeah, that's my phone, my position in there. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Humphrey. Ah, so many Hightower children. Humphrey is the one traveling to Lice to visit Liness. So, what you get, the sense of all this is with all these children, of course, a lot of the daughters have been married out, except for the eldest daughter, whose nickname is Melora the Mad Maid. Mad Maid, meaning, you know, she's not married. Uh, and she's the eldest daughter, so she's well past marrying age. Doesn't look like she's ever going to get married. She has a reputation of being into sorcery a bit, uh, into magic and stuff. It, it's all rumor. We don't really know how, where that rumor comes from. Her father's also got that reputation, and he hasn't come down from this high tower in ten years. He's literally not set foot on regular ground in ten years. He's been up in this tower for ten years. It's just kind of like, really? <laughs> but yeah, he's and he, he rules from up there, and he's got his you know, his crow's, crow's eye view of the city, and probably a nice view, really. Yeah. But, uh, so, but what, what the, the, the sense what you get there is more about the way High Tower runs itself. You don't have their children all over scattered throughout Westeros doing different things like a lot of other uh, large families, a lot of powerful families do. They're all kept close. All the High Tower family, all the sons have jobs or duties or or responsibilities that revolve around Old Town itself. Well, Humphreys. Except for perhaps and He's coming Humphrey. back with Selfish. Right, he has a job yeah. to perform for Old Town. But basically, their responsibilities involve Old Town itself, and usually they are right there. And so that, that speaks to the way they, they sort of run their business, so to speak. Uh, they keep things tight, they keep, uh, they keep the family close together, and they keep their power centralized. Uh, they don't really seem to be interested in expanding out a lot and spreading their reach out because why would they? They've got the, you know this hugely powerful port that they have you know, great control over. They almost certainly are reaping massive uh, taxes off of, of, of all the commerce, and of course we know how rich they are. So you know why would they spread out so much? Spreading out, of course, you could be even more powerful to spread out. But on the other hand, spreading out opens you up to new enemies, uh, spreads your power out, maybe makes you not as potent. So this has been their philosophy a long time, and it seems like that has been passed down through the high towers as a family, sort of like, like family wisdom. You keep the family together, you know, keep, stick with what's important, that's our money, you know, keep, stick with what makes us what we are. So uh, now Shay's going to get us into uh, the Citadel. Of course, the Citadel... Uh, one thing, one real fact that I want to put out real quick before we get into the Citadel, uh, an interesting note about the history of Old Town. Because King's Landing has surpassed it within the past, say, 200 years, 
Um, it's it's kind of neat to think about the fact that Old Town at one point was the largest port in all of Westeros, the richest as well as the center for learning because it housed the Citadel, has always housed the Citadel since as long as it's been around, and was the seat of religion when the High Septon had the base there. So you got to think that even though King's Landing is larger now, relatively speaking, Old Town was more powerful in its heyday than King's Landing is now. You can make that argument because of the fact that so much was concentrated there. So they didn't have a king there. Right, they did not have a king there. That's a good point. They didn't have centralized power controlling Westeros, but they did have the center of religion, the center of trade, and the center of learning. So, very, very important. Anyway. All right. So the Citadel is where the Maesters study, as I think we all know. Uh, House Hightower was instrumental in their founding. Uh, we don't know the exact specifics about that, but I imagine they were powerful, they had money, they supported them in building the Citadel, something like that. They continue to support them. They're patrons of the arts, which is probably pretty popular for lords and anything like that around Old Town, which is a place of learning. Maesters have, one, have a lot of important jobs, but one in particular is that they declare the change of the seasons. They send out their white ravens throughout the land and tell them when the seasons have changed. There's also, um, interestingly enough, the Pyromancer's Guild was at one point apparently more influential than the Citadel, but they have since, they've since outpowered them, so I'm not sure when the, the I guess, I, I'm not sure when the Pyromancer's Guild was more powerful, though. That's a vague notion. It, yeah. it seems like the Pyromancers were just established. They were the only sort of guild associated with learning and anything of remotely associated with that. And I imagine that something like you were speaking on before about the high towers and how they sort of got this whole thing, got the ball rolling, so to speak, with, with the Citadel. I imagine that be, being um, cosmopolitan and, and dealing with so many uh, people from so many uh, places throughout the world that, and the fact that they do a lot of traveling, not, not literally themselves, but that they, their, their wealth travels far and wide uh, via ships, that they had an interest in learning more about things like navigation and astronomy. <laughs> and shipbuilding and uh, things like that uh, because it, basically they wanted to increase their wealth or at least maintain it. Mm -hmm. And what better way uh, among, you know, there's a lot of other things you said, but, but um, what, what better way than learning more about what the business you're doing, learning more about how to make it and, and teaching others how to do it well. Uh, it's, something that, it's actually something that, that is arguably what happens in the modern world. You have countries like, like the United States that sometimes will uh, deal with a foreign nation to the point where they, they try to encourage that nation to develop their own free market. Part of that is, in the, you know, without getting deep into politics here, some of that is, is viewed as moral because they, you're trying to bring these people into the, into the modern world. But part of it is just pragmatism. You want new trading partners. You want them to get themselves together and get all their resources well sorted out and, and organized and priced out and, and uh -huh. prepared for shipping to other places. You know, we want to, in ancient times, the Europeans wanted to develop a silk road to China because silk was amazing and they wanted lots of silk. And, uh, you know, they, they learned, they wanted to map the, the regions and learn, uh, le learn how to bring silk over cheaper and, and whether they could sail to get there rather than just over the road. So it's things like this, I imagine. It's a bit of, that's a bit of a tangent, but I think a lot of that is, is related to why they wanted to found the Citadel in the first place. Mm -hmm. Now, All right. 
Steve, yeah. why don't you tell us about uh, the Citadel itself, the land it's on? Sure. Um, yeah, basically, yeah, the Citadel is really interesting. This is actually the focal point, it seems, of Old Town. I'm very established that it's a pretty powerful commerce type city, but you know, the Citadel also makes it a very you know, poignant religious point for all of Westeros. And the fact that the Citadel itself, think of it as like a large university, and it's broken up by several different portions, like you have a science department or you know, literature department and whatnot. The same thing with the Citadel, you have various departments throughout this. It's all connected over the entrance to the honey wine coming out of the whispering sound. Um, and that makes it really interesting as to how they would actually have so much power as a, you know, it's not unheard of to have a religious entity be as a powerful political tool as well. It's also connected with, uh, it was connected by these stone bridges that go back and forth over the opening. Um, some of them actually connect even to little aisles. And they connect various towers and various domes throughout the citadel. There are also these houses installed all along the bridges. And the gates are flanked, interestingly enough, with these two sphinxes, um, statues. They have the bodies of lions, the wings of eagles, and the tails of serpents. Interestingly enough, one of them has the face of a male, and the other has the face of a female. Sounds a little familiar, isn't it, Disease? Yeah, it does. There's another character um, who will remain nameless that makes note of another pair of Valyrian sphinxes in Essos along a certain road. Uh, he notes that the male is missing because it was dragged off by the Dothraki to base Dothrak. So the male half of this pair of sphinxes is, is uh, in the possession of the Dothraki, but the female is still sitting there. So that's really interesting to me. I, it's just a little tantalizing little tidbit. I really don't know what to do with it other than to say, hmm, that's the same, possibly the same pair of sphinxes that we saw at that spot in Essos. And I don't really know what it means, but I think it's cool. Aziz, <laughs> yeah. you want to tell us about a few areas within the Citadel? Absolutely. We have more evidence of the wealth and power of Old Town, all this great stonework and all these great structures. There's a great statue of King Daron I as in the young dragon, the one who conquered Dorne, uh, albeit for only a short period of time. And the statue is a, it's a large statue of him with his sword pointed east towards Dorne. And we don't know when this was built, but obviously it was built after King Daron conquered Dorne. Uh, it, decent chance it was commissioned by his own brother, Baylor, the Blessed. Uh, perhaps it came around the same time that the Sept uh, the Great Sept of Baylor was built on Visenya's Hill in King's Landing. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the seat of the High Septon was moved uh, from Old Town to King's Landing at some point. Whether or not that coincided with the building of the Great Sept is, is unclear, but it seems likely. So perhaps this statue was sort of a, hey, we took, your, uh, we took the Sept from you, but we'll give you, at least we'll give you the statue of Daron. But perhaps the two aren't related at all. We don't know when that statue was built. There's a place called the Scribe's Hearth. Now, that is sort of like a it's sort of like a market for scribes. You have a lot of young uh, sort of maybe you can think of them as freshmen or sophomores uh, from a, if you want to make a comparison to a modern university, and they're kind of farmed out by the older the, by the teachers and professors as uh, as student workers basically. Uh, basically, they sit there. Uh, waiting for someone to come and say, hey, I need you to write me, draw me up a contract. It's 
me between me and this other merchant here, or I need you to draw me up a contract between me and these bodyguards, or uh, a bill of sale, things like that. Remember that a lot of people in Westeros do not know how to read or write. Uh, and, and of course, it's not so black and white as that. A lot of people strictly can't read or write at all, but a few of them probably can read a little bit. Uh, maybe they can read a little or write a little bit. So you need people who are actually experts at this sort of thing, who actually know how to write. There's a great need for people who can make up a document, you know, just come up with uh, the, the, the legalese that, that is necessary to make it official. Um, and they'll, they'll sell, they sell books as well, they've got maps, things like that. Uh, basically all sorts of scribe-oriented interesting things. There's also a place called the Weeping Dock, which is sort of a smaller port, like a port within the port. Uh, it, it's used to go to a place called the Bloody Isle. Fortunately, I don't know what the heck the Bloody Isle is, but sounds pretty cool. It's probably an old name. It's probably something from history. Old Town is too civilized to have something regularly, you know, going on at the Bloody Isle. I don't think they have any sort of prisoner torture thing going on there. It's probably something. It was probably something that was contested before. Maybe it relates to the to the pirate king that Ashad mentioned earlier that ruled Old Town. Oh, we haven't mentioned that yet. Okay, well. <laughs> That hasn't come up, but maybe it's related to that. There was a pirate king that ruled in this area before Old Town became. Old. So, uh, yes, possibly, we had, yes, we had the serial killer jumping the gun there, as it were. Yes. Um, and there's also the Seneschal's court, which uh, the Seneschal kind of governs the citadel. He's sort of the sort of like a headmaster, but uh, not specifically that. It's a it's a loose title. Maybe it is. It's whatever. It's a seneschal. A seneschal of a, of a place of learning versus a seneschal. Well, the seneschal of rotates. Uh, right, and the seneschal rotates. It's Most maesters don't want to be a seneschal. Right. It's it's kind of a thankless, boring tact, but it's a duty of the maesters, and the archmaesters sort of rotate. The maesters slash archmaesters rotate the duty for about a year at a time, and that passes back and forth. Now, uh, there's one other place, uh, also right there at the seneschal's court, uh, where they where they also um, Deal out punishment to acolytes who've misbehaved. Uh, yeah, maybe a little whipping here and there. Maybe uh, maybe some time in the stocks. Maybe some uh, some of them are probably just punished by giving them extra work. But the ones who are particularly bad, imagine they get sent here. Um, now, Ashea is going to uh, continue this this monologue uh, <laughs> dialogue rather. Yes. There's some stuff that I uh, jumped the gun on uh, as well as some other things. All right. So near the, near the Citadel, there's a place called the Isle of Ravens, which is a pretty descriptive title. It's linked to the eastern bank of the Honey Wine by bridge. Uh, there's a ravenry there. That's the oldest building of the Citadel. So pretty old, though not as old as Old Town itself. Now during the Age of Heroes, there was there was uh, a pirate king that set up that set up shop on on the Isle of Ravens. And he could just pick off ships as they came down river, and obviously it was probably pretty hard to get him, but he was conquered eventually. The Isle of Ravens, as I said, it has the ravenry. The ravenry is covered with moss and vines. Being the oldest building in the Citadel, it has a werewood in it. So uh, it also has the White Raven Rookery. Which is, as I said before, where they send out the ravens announcing the change of the seasons. So this Isle of Ravens is a, is a pretty important building in the Citadel, I'd say. Um, to jump in there, I'd say that, that it's a safe guess that 
since the the Ravenry is the oldest building in the Citadel, and we know a bit about the history of ravens being used as messengers, it seems pretty likely that this was just that was its first thing. There was a, a ra it was the center of Ravenry, and eventually that expanded to other other you know studies of knowledge uh, besides just ravens. They studied all the other things they studied at the Citadel: um, history and and alchemy and fireworking and, and more studious things like trade and and uh, economies things like that so but but it like a lot of things it started off as something that was immediately useful basically the postal service of westeros the sort of the the hub of you can sort of think of the the, the postal hub being there in old town it's been there for thousands of years so mm. To talk about maesters specifically, we're going to save a lot of the maester talk for the spoilery sister of this podcast. I was wondering but, the, go ahead. Well, what about the, the structure of the maesters? Because I understand there's like, you know, there's like the entry level, which would be the novice. Yeah. And like the, the acolytes after that. And what comes next? Is that the archmaesters? Uh, I think that, uh, that's, a, that's a good question, Steve. It starts off you start off as a novice, mm. and I believe you become an acolyte yes. after forging uh, your first link. Um, and when you have enough links to actually make a chain, you're a maester. Um, but it's before that you have to take the test, which is the the glass candle test. Mm -hmm. And this is a this is an interesting anecdote. Uh, the glass candles are an artifact. We're not really sure their origin, but they've been around a long time. Uh, perhaps they're from Valyria. Uh, Valyria was the... They're made of dragonglass, uh, as far as we can tell, which is obsidian. And that's which, which is another kind of hint, something else that points to their origin towards Valyria. Valyria was the center of magic for all things that we know about for thousands of years. So any any kind of historical magic thing that didn't come from Westeros is a pretty safe bet to, to pin it on on Valyria. So basically, the glass candle is it's, it's sort of like a lantern. It, it lights up with a flame. It doesn't move. There's like I said, there's four of them Citadel has. One of them is green, and three of them are black. And it's it's sort of like a flashlight, really, if you think about it, the way it's described. Although it's described by people that have never seen a flashlight or any sort of electric light. So it, it, it's, it's, they describe it as a candle that doesn't move, a flame that doesn't respond to wind, things like that. So it's a very unusual item. And this last night, when, a, when, a, when an acolyte wants to become a maester, their final test is that they are put in this dark cell, with no, literally with no light, and they're given this glass candle, and they're told to try and light it. And some of them spend all night trying to light it. Some of them try really hard and end up with bloody hands because the thing is, is sharp. <laughs> and some of them, you know, try... I mean, what can they do? They're sitting there in a dark room. They can't even... They can hardly see the thing. Well, they can't see the thing. And they don't have any tools with them. So basically, they're... It sets them up to do something that they're not really taught how to do at all. And in fact, it goes against a lot of their teachings because... As we'll, as we'll see, the maesters are not really, most of them are not so big on magic and magical concepts. So 
the fact that they're all presented with this obviously, fairly obviously magical item and told to try to use it is sort of a, a way to kind of get them to stop thinking about that. It's sort of like, look, magic is, isn't around. It's kind of useless. Don't trust in that. Trust in things that you can count on. Uh, so a lot of maesters don't even try. A lot of these guys don't just, just go to sleep. They don't even worry about the candle. They just go to sleep, get a nice night's sleep, and say, I'm not kind of worried about that thing. I know this is just some silly test. They wake up in the morning, and they're a maester. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a test of utility, just to you know, test your patience. An interesting fact about those glass candles that isn't a spoiler, because it happens during Clash of Kings, uh, we find out these glass candles are burning again as of Clash of Kings and as of the birth of Daenerys' dragon. So that's related in some way, clearly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, so it's not like some person started them burning again. It's just that they... We're, oh, we don't know that for sure. It's just we're told that the glass candles are burning. Yeah. So... It's mentioned a few times. Very mild spoiler, so, you know, don't, don't hang yeah. Don't hang up on us, you know, just yet. <laughs> we'll go more into that, though, yeah. on, on the next episode, for the sure. The spoilery aspects of that we will certainly get into, but that's so none of that is, is actually spoilery. Um, another character that we're going to talk about next week also is Marwyn the Mage. He gets mentioned, actually, in Game of Thrones, and I believe maybe not in Clash of Kings, but he gets mentioned by Miri Mazdur, uh, and he comes up again later. So, so that's a little uh, something to pique your interest on. He is one of the few maesters who actually has an opinion on magic who isn't isn't poo-pooing the whole concept. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing that um, the maesters do is each, as we know, each chain, each link in their chain is a certain metal, and each metal refers to a particular area of knowledge. Black iron, for example, is raven root. And you got to think that that's a real common one for maesters to learn, because we all see that we're, everywhere you see in, in the series, there's a castle that has a maester, and that maester's in charge of the ravens. Maybe he has an assistant helping him, but, but that's, a, that's a big one. Um, you've got copper, which is the study of history. You've got Valyrian steel, which is the study of magic. Or really not, the, not magic. They don't call it magic. They call it the higher mystery. <laughs> maester Lewin, in fact, has a Valyrian uh, steel link in his chain. But there's a step above this. The links are for maesters, but the head of each order, as in the head of each metal, as in the top silver guy, the top <laughs> electrum guy, the top yellow gold guy, they don't just have the link, they also have a rod and a mask. And a ring. And a ring. And it signifies their uh, sort of dominance in that particular area. So... They're the professor of that discipline. Right, they're discipline. Each Maester Marwin has the Valyrian steel rod, ring, and mask. And uh, Archmaester Periston has the copper? Yes. Copper. He's the historian. The historian. I'm sorry, I said copper. I guess I didn't say that right. Yeah, um, yeah he's copper historian. So what's, what's interesting is we have a lot, we have this huge list of medals. We don't actually know which correspond to which in a lot of these cases. Like we don't know. We, know we, we don't know eight of them. Yeah, we, we know that copper is history, bronze is astronomy, silver is medicine and healing. Also, gold, also poisoning, by the way. Silver. Copper. Healing and poisoning go together. Healing okay. and killing. So I don't we know smithing is pale steel. Uh, and yeah, that, that's what we know. You know, black iron is ravenry. As long as you mentioned, there are eight metals that we don't know. There's pewter and platinum. We don't know those go to. But I'm sure we'll learn those later. But also, because I did need to note that there are these different levels within the Citadel. They have novices, acolytes, maesters, archmaesters, and then they have the head of each dis uh, discipline. Uh, now, there's no soldiers. There's no... 
there's no real power in the Citadel as far as a feudal system goes. But these people have a lot of influence. They get to decide which uh, maester goes to which castle, mm -hmm. and they elect the Grand Maester, as in Grand Maester Pycelle. Now, the Grand Maester is an interesting situation. He's sort of the head of... He's sort of the maester to the king, or to the royal family. Mm -hmm. But he's completely removed from maester society, so to speak. So he doesn't actually have a lot of influence, I'd say. He, he does have influence, but he doesn't. In other words, his title and his authority give him influence, but he doesn't have the opportunity to sort of make a lot of friends and play political games because all the other maesters are either in one per castle or they're all at Old Town. So it's a kind of an unusual situation where you've got one guy kind of placed above the others, but he doesn't necessarily have a lot of power. Uh, he certainly does have power at court, but as far as other maesters go, he just has this authority because he's got this title, Grand Maester, but he has no real way of enforcing it. He doesn't have a lot of money, he doesn't have soldiers, he doesn't have, he's not a lord. I mean, so I kind of imagine the Citadel as being a lot like a modern university. You've got a lot of people who are, actually I want to, I want to say it's a bit like a frat. You've got a lot of people who aren't, who their families aren't supposed to matter. Your family isn't supposed to matter when you're at school, but but in reality it does. It's just like the majors. The majors are supposed to forget their title, forget their their family name. But really, I'm sure some of them have old alliances. Just like on the wall, some of these guys still think about their families. Some of them desert to go see their families, or or they they march because someone and their family has been betrayed or is in a situation where they need, they feel like they need to go for help. Just like that. I'm sure this happens at the Citadel, too. These are human beings we're talking about. They are not robots. You can't just tell them, forget your family, and that, make it so. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. So, but, but interestingly enough, they do, they're supposed to not say their old name. It's supposed to not be a part of who they are, even though we know that in reality it is. Which, which kind of brings up an interesting point, in that uh, Maester Eamon went to the Citadel, became a Maester, and then he took the black. So he's like, dropped his name pretty much twice. <laughs> his identity anyways. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> he, he ceased to be Targaryen twice. Um, and he, also a good example of a guy that, that did forge a link in the higher mysteries. But... Um, potentially, his story, of course, is a little unusual because he was also a potential claimant to the throne. So he had to remove himself from the dynasty in order to not be a threat to his own brother. Even though he knew he personally he was never going to go attack his own brother. That's not how these things always work. Sometimes someone else, you know, props up a pretender, uh, you know, puts their, their army behind someone with royal blood. And, real, and the, the person with royal blood really doesn't have a say in what's happening. It's really just power behind the, the potential throne that is uh, kind of calling the shots. And that's happened plenty of times in history and, and in the series as well. Uh, so, awesome. let's see, any more about the maesters that we can come up with? Other than that, we're going to, uh, I think we're, we're winding it down here. Um, yeah. So much of this stuff is spoilery, and we're going to want to save it for, for next week. Uh, well, uh, let's do our... Let's do our um, make sure you vote in the poll on our Facebook page. If you want to see, you can add your own options even. So if you really want to hear something, you know, just just write it in there, and hopefully we'll do an episode on it. Yeah, there's there's so many possibilities for topics. It's you know, it's, it's endless. So we we there's something you guys may even have suggestions we haven't even thought of. So uh, don't assume that we've thought of everything. Also, if you guys, I imagine like we Steve and I did, you like having Shea here with us, having mm -hmm. a third voice. 
having a female voice in here. Let it be known. Let us know that you like having her, because <laughs> uh, we did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, or we're trying to get her to be more regular. So, uh, yeah, so I of course... I am here every podcast, listening in, laughing in the background. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> They're so, just too funny. So let's uh, let's do our um, let's do our references here. Of course, mm -hmm. thanks as usual to the Westeros.org forums. Uh, those will really come up uh, next week when we discuss the plots and theories. But also, it's it's useful as usual. They're useful for picking out um, data about the past and coming up with um, our own thoughts and ideas and notions on what these historical details actually mean. Part of the part of the process is research, but part of it is analysis and synthesis, and a lot of those guys are really good at that, and we borrow a lot from them. Of course, um, there's always uh, the Tower of the Hand, and there is always our other friends in the podcasting community, uh, Ken Lopez from Triple Dash and Broken Things, and uh, Matt from uh, Podcast Winterfell. Yeah. Um, so, also, of course, folks, as usual, we have our Facebook page. Uh, uh, it's, it's History of Westeros on Facebook. That's where our poll is. Uh, we'll have another poll up uh, maybe in a week or so. The next episode's already set because it's the spoiler half of, of this one. But uh, we'll keep an eye out for another one. And, of course, look us up on Twitter. We've been posting uh, our Twitter account posts, little yeah. historical tidbits from, from here uh, now, now and again, little fun facts that are uh, usually related to the next topic or the topic that we just covered. And, uh, what else? We have our email address if you want to contact us directly. Maybe you want to you know, provide some input, suggestions, anything like that. You can reach us at uh, westeroshistory at gmail.com. Um, anything else? I think that's about it. Yes. Okay, well, great. Um, well, once again, uh, we we'll want to thank Shea for you know, joining us here on the podcast. And, of course, uh, Aziz and myself, we're going to be here, try to be here every week anyways. Um, <laughs> Once again, for tuning in to the History of West Rose podcast, this is a podcast dedicated to A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. Martin, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones on HBO. Um, once again, as he said, we're going to be uh, continuing our discussion on Old Town and the Citadel, and this discussion is going to be dealing more he really heavy in spoilers, since we're going to talk about how so many of the various characters, um, particularly a lot of the maesters and the people that you know interact with them, play into these later books, and you know, if you want to know what may or may not play out in the TV show later on, tune in. Um, if you don't, don't. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all I've got. Uh, again, I'm Steve, um, and everybody else? Aziz. And I'm Michelle. <laughs> Thanks, folks. See you next week. Yep, thank you once again. I'm going to close out now. <laughs>